0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of January 14th, 2019. On today's show, we resume our chronological Disneyland story in 1998 with the initial part of Disney's California Adventure construction. Also, we've got some news about some would say an unprecedented Disney World discount that's just been announced. But first, don't forget to check out our other shows at Disney Dish. .bandcamp.com. Now let's bring in the man who will be speaking at the funerals of both Super Dave Osborne and the captain of Captain and Tennille, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, love will keep us together.
1: Oh, <laughs> if you go on YouTube, you can actually watch the very first time he did that character. And it was oddly enough, Dick Van Dyke had a very, very short-lived variety show. It was called Van Dyke and Company, but it was... It was very cutting edge. It was the very first place anywhere on television where people saw Andy Kaufman. Really? Yeah. I mean, it just, and the thing is you have Dick Van Dyke on stage, like, and he's doing his foreign man character. And I think they, actually he sings, it's a small world. So there was a Disney connection. <laughs> There's a Disney connection in there. <laughs> but you would love the first super Dave Osborne thing. Cause it's totally, it's the introduction of the character. It's the, he's totally riffing on the evil Knievel jumping snake river thing. And, yep. and you see Super Dave in costume. He's walking up a ramp. He's interviewed by his longtime sports caster companion. He's mounting his own really, really dangerous attempt, and they keep it in very tight close up right up until the reveal midway through the skid. And he's talking about, you know, he's he's going over seventy miles an hour. He's going to go a uh, three sixty, and the camera finally pull, pulls back, and he's just been seated. In the Mexican Revolution coaster at Magic Mountain in California, <laughs> there is a pair of nuns seated behind him. There is a toddler seated next to him, but the whole time he's acting like he's Evil Knievel.
0: Yeah. So for our listeners who aren't familiar, Super Dave Osborne was a character in what was it, about twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. In the early days of cable TV is when I got to know him. But he he was a parody of Evil Knievel. Yeah. The stuntman, and he would announce these big plans for a stunt, <laughs> and in the end, it would invariably be one of two things. Something like Jim said where he's doing some sort of common thing or the stunt would go awry somehow and he would end up getting crushed mm-hmm. in the uh, stunt. It, the stunts only ended one of two ways <laughs> every single time. Was he on Showtime, Jim, or Cinemax? What was it? Yeah. And the show was bizarre, right? Was yeah, the, 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 show? the John Biner show. The character came back in
1: several different forms but the, the gag was pretty much always the same. that yeah. They misunderstood the cue and then the they would drop an oversized white or it was clearly a dummy. And then, you know, yeah. Bob Einstein off camera would, would complain loudly about how his spleen was now coming out his nose. But
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> by the way, another note for our listeners, Jim and I normally talk about what we're going to talk about on the show, but I never tell him about the introductions. And I love the fact that I bring up some obscure TV character, from the back channels of the uh, uh, of cable TV from 30 years ago, Super Dave Osborne and and Jim not only knows him but has a story about it. That's just fantastic. Look, <laughs> well, okay,
1: that, that's the problem in my brain. There's no math or science left.
0: But Super Dave Osborne, that's of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I can tell you three stories about him. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, Jim. Let's uh, let's go on to our news. Mm-hmm. Our Disney Dish news is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish for a worry-free travel experience every time book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news uh, last week was that Disney announced a free dining promotion. Valid dates in case our listeners want to book it. are travel from July 5th through September 30th. Most nights, you have to check in between those two dates. And you have to book your uh, stay between now and February 10th. A couple of other things. If you're staying at a deluxe uh, or a deluxe villa hotel, Uh, you'll get the Disney Dining Plan for free. If you're at a moderate or a value resort, you'll get the quick service dining plan for free. Of course, you can always pay to upgrade the dining plan. Here are some interesting other uh, caveats, though. For this version of Dining dining Plan, you must have a minimum four-day theme park purchase, and you must stay at least four nights as well. And your tickets have to include the Park Hopper or Park Hopper Plus option. Jim, I know that I'm going on and on here about the details, but there are also some exclusions. Uh, You can't book a campsite. You can't book a three-bedroom villa. You cannot also stay at the cabins at Copper Creek or Wilderness Lodge or the bungalows at the Polynesian or the Little Mermaid standard rooms or Port Orleans French Quarter or all-star movies. I'm exhausted just reading this. So, Jim, real quick, I want to get your take on this. This is the earliest by about three and a half months that Disney has ever announced a free dining offer. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, look at the it's Lynn. It's
1: July 5th. It's summer. Yeah. And you know what that says? That says that people are waiting for Galaxy's Edge. You think that's what it is? I would bet you that on the booking side of the fence, there's enough people at this point who know about Star Wars Land, the thing that's coming yeah. to Disney's Hollywood Studios, and are putting off their trip. And in fact, to me, the giveaway is look at the exclusions. Cabins at Copper Creek, the cabins at Wilderness Lodge, the bungalows at Polynesian Villa, those are sold out anyway.
0: Bungalows aren't, but yeah, but the other ones are,
1: yeah. Yeah, high demand. Likewise, campsites.
0: Well, campsites are cheap. That's why they're that's why you can't do it, right? Yeah, you can get a campsite for $38 a night. But again,
1: things like the little mermaid standard rooms at the Art of Animation. This is all about the fact that bookings in the summer. R soft out ahead, you know, and the fact that what's making the folks crazy at the reservations that are at Disney is they can't, people are calling, people are calling now and going, I've heard all about this, this galaxy's edge thing. And I want to go to it. And when can I book? And it's like, we don't have an opening date yet. Fall. So, <laughs> you know, and that's it exactly. So people are Fall. just, okay. okay, I'll call back. If you think about what we already know about what's opening during this window of time, we have the end of Illuminations.
0: Did you notice that this deal ends right around the time that all of the the big things are supposed to uh, supposed to debut? So it ends on September thirtieth. Yeah, which means that things like Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, mm-hmm. the end of Illuminations, should all happen after that. Yeah,
1: I was just talking with some folks on the Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway project. They still hope that they can have that thing open. For the actual 30th anniversary of, of Disney's Hollywood Studio. In fact, did you see the logo that debuted on New Year's Day? I did. What is the What is the date of the 30th anniversary? May 1st, 2019. You think they're going to have it ready in four months? <laughs> well, let's just put it away. Who needs sleep, Len? Who needs to see their family? <laughs> who, who needs to bathe? It's going right?
0: to be like that episode of Family Ties where Alex takes the amphetamines <laughs> and he's, he's installing a sprinkler system at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Look, it's not a coincidence
1: that, you know, if you look at the 30th anniversary, who's sitting in the the O of the 30, but Mickey and Minnie, and in the style that we'll see these characters in
0: Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway. Yeah. You, you noticed that switch, too, that they went over, they went back to the, they're tying in the the style of the character at the parks with the style of the character on the cartoons now.
1: That's it, exactly. That's a big shift. Yeah. Trust me, that especially going into the late spring, summer of, of 2019, you're going to be really familiar with that version of Mickey and Minnie. The billboard art is ready. You're going to see them up on I-4 coming and going. It's crucial that that ride be open and be ready because there's just a fear right now that people are holding back. And the very fact that we're seeing this Disney dining offer come out, as you mentioned, that's never come out this early before, more to the point it's being offered during summer. This
0: is the Canary in the coal line, Len. The thing that I've been telling people too is this may not be the only free dining offer this year. You notice this one uh, ends on September 30th. Mm-hmm. The normal dates of free dining go from late August through the third week of December. Mm-hmm. So it's entirely possible. We'll see another free dining for October and whatever part of November. We don't have Galaxy's Edge open, right? So if, if Galaxy's Edge is really going to open the third week of December or, you know, quote, late fall. And Disney needs something to get uh, get them through October. We may see another free dining offer as well. listener to the show
1: was talking with a cast member at Epcot who was mentioning that he's part of a group of cast members that are actually going over in January, February to begin working on Galaxy's Edge. When that came in, I think you and I both were like, that seems a
0: little weird. Yeah, they were saying that, so the email was that uh, Test and Adjust was beginning at Galaxy's Edge. I don't believe it's happening in Walt Disney World. I mean, they're not done with construction, for one thing. I did call out to California.
1: I did get a hold of of folks who were working on the project. And the way they explained it to me, and this is is kind of the interesting difference between Florida and California. Remember, Florida is a right-to-work state. And Mm -hmm. Disneyland is facing the very same issues in regard to Galaxy's Edge. In fact, supposedly they're going to try to do a media preview to get people talking about Galaxy's Edge. On May the 4th. Okay. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know the whole May the 4th be with you bit. And that's out ahead of the formal opening, which will be six to eight weeks later. But because they're running and gunning in just the same way that Anaheim is... They're obviously head construction wise, but they still, they still have to train employees, right? The very thing you and I were talking about the load on load procedure for millennium Falcon, a smuggler's run. Mm-hmm. If you get inside the actual ride buildings, both for rise of the resistance and millennium Falcon, they're essentially done in both California and Florida, but it would be cheaper to do the initial testing in Florida And then take that information out to California to train the Disneyland employees with Disney will admit that these lands cost $600 million each to build. I'm being told it's a lot higher than that land. I've heard a billion. Yeah. Yeah. And so now very late in the game we're getting a guys save money wherever you can because nobody wants to be at the end the guy who has to carry the actual cost of this to know, <laughs> Just literally here Mr. Chepek we'll just put that on our desk and then scamper out of the room before you throw things at us. <laughs> so if they can do this testing in Florida for cheaper and then use that to train the Disneyland employees
0: rather than do the initial training out in California or, you know, the cost will be so much higher. Isn't the cost of training going to be a rounding error on this? I mean, on a billion dollars, what's like, if the cost of training is a million dollars, mm-hmm. you know, or if they're saving a million dollars, that's one-tenth of one percent?
1: That perhaps gives you some idea of
0: how far over budget this
1: has gone, Lynn. Yeah. At this point, there are people trying trying to make efforts like, look, we save money wherever we could. But at this point, Len, it's like, did you use that styrofoam cup just once? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> once it's completed, this will all be a wash. But it, it's, it's yeah. at this point where there's so much pressure. You've got a public that's clearly so interested in it that they're putting off their Disney World trips.
0: Oh, yeah. People I've talked to, I've told them. If you're going just to go, mm-hmm. go ahead and do it. But if you really want to see something new or exciting, if you want something different on this trip, wait until December yeah. to do it because that's when, or you know, go in June into Disneyland. Mm-hmm. But uh, but December for Walt Disney World. And I think people are people know that, right? I mean a, a large percentage of the, of the population is just going to go to Disney World whenever they can. No one's going to tell their kids they can't go on vacation for 11 months mm-hmm. because of uh, you know, because they want to see Galaxy's Edge. But for anyone who wants to ha- or has to rationalize Spending that amount of money on a vacation. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to do is to say, well, I'll go when Galaxy's Edge opens. And they're just holding off until then. There we go. Going back to that, uh, that offer though, Jim, I did notice something new. We mentioned that of all of the places that uh, were excluded from the offer, mm-hmm. you know, the usuals are in there, the uh, the campsites, the cabins, and things like that. Port mm-hmm. French Quarter is always uh, or usually uh, on that list because it's small mm-hmm. and it's heavily in demand. The thing that surprised me was all-star movies. Yeah. I don't think I've, I've ever seen All-Star movies be excluded from an offer like this. And I think the reason is this. Remember a couple of shows ago, we talked about how uh, All-Star movies is in the middle of a refurbishment and they're getting the new rooms. Mm-hmm. And I think what Disney uh, is thinking here is that these new rooms are going to be in such demand, especially for All-Stars, that they don't need to discount them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's true. All-Star movies have, has always been the slightly higher priced of all of the All-Star resorts. And now that they've started the refurbishments there and the refurbishments are paying off, I think Disney's starting to exclude those. But I think what we're going to see too is uh, even more stratification Mm -hmm. among Disney's value resorts as time goes on. So right now it's, you know, the all-star resorts are sort of the low end Mm -hmm. of the values. Then pop is sort of in the middle and art of animation is at the top end of the value, right? Mm -hmm. But I think Disney Disney's actually going to stratify the all-stars so that the absolute lowest are sports and music. And then you've got another tier of value, like tier two of value, which would be movies. Then tier three of value will be pop. Mm. And tier four of value might be pop near the gondolas. Then tier five of value might be art of animation. Then tier six of value might be art of animation suites and art of animation near the gondolas. So they're actually going to stratify the value resorts as much as they can to differentiate the pricing there based on amenities and location. I
1: think particularly when you mentioned the Skyliner, the gondolas, yeah, I totally anticipate that once that actually comes online and Disney's going to be selling this as a perk. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be fascinated to see three and four years out from the the opening of Skyliner, whether or not we're going to see people paying a premium,
0: like they pay to be on the monorail, to to be a monorail resort. It could be true. That, uh, that's a good point. We haven't uh, talked about that yet. Mm-hmm. I crunched some numbers mm-hmm. on this deal just to see if it made sense. Mm-hmm. The big requirements for this deal are twofold. Mm-hmm. One, you have to buy a park hopper mm-hmm. or park harpa plus ticket, so no base tickets. That's going to add anywhere from uh, eighty to one hundred and seven dollars per person to your ticket. Mm-hmm. So for a family four, that's an additional three hundred and twenty to four hundred and twenty eight dollars on your ticket. And also there's a minimum uh, stay of uh, four nights. Also, you can't take advantage of any other hotel discount. Right now, there are uh, some pretty decent uh, hotel discounts out covering these timeframes. For value resorts, that's anywhere from 15 to 20%. For moderates, it's 10 to 30%, depending on which hotel you stay at and the dates. If you actually look at those numbers, I think the number of people who would benefit from this dining plan Is relatively small Mm -hmm. because again you're you're paying it anywhere from three hundred and twenty to four hundred and twenty eight dollars more per ticket for the for the tickets, right? So that's somewhere between what eighty and over hundred dollars a day in food, right there. Plus, you can't get a a hotel discount, which twenty percent off of one hundred and twenty dollars a night is twenty four dollars per night. So you know you're looking at about a hundred hundred and fifty ish a night. Uh, at the top end in, in discounts. Now, granted, you can't feed four people for $150 a day in Disney World, mm-hmm. but you've, you've got to really do the math here, I think, especially if you're staying at a value resort, to see whether it makes sense for you.
1: The other thing,
0: when you look at the time frame, we're talking,
1: what, July 5th to September 30th, right? That's the height of the heat of summer in Orlando. The thing that kind of makes me crazy about free dining is the way it's structured, you are compelled... To get the most value out of the free dining, you are always overeating at every meal, no matter where you go. Because again, it's like, you know, I paid for this in and it's just sort of
0: like. We're going to enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> We're going to eat this food. Yeah. yeah.
1: So now you step outside in the super heat and humidity of summer in Orlando. And it's
0: like, do you remember the Alfredo's restaurant? At- oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned the July thing. I actually did the statistics on this. Mm-hmm. So. Attendance has actually been down each of the last two, July and August, Mm -hmm. as you're looking at our crowd calendar numbers. So back in 2016, on our scale from one to 10, Mm -hmm. we rated July as roughly an eight, and August as a seven and a half on our scale. Mm. That's 2016. In 2017, it dropped from eight to Mm 6.6 in both July and August. And then last year, 2018, it was 5.6 and four Mm -hmm. for August. So to put four in perspective, that's basically a November, not an August. Mm And I think, I went back and looked at the temperatures. So Orlando is averaging Mm -hmm. the last couple of years. The average temperature throughout the day in Orlando is 82 degrees with 80% humidity. Uh And it gets up to around uh, 92 or 93 degrees for a high. Mm -hmm. 92 or 93 degrees for a high plus 80% humidity gives you a heat index of somewhere between 120 and 130 degrees. So that's what it feels like Uh in Orlando. I think that that has something to do with it. Uh That's not going to change. <laughs> there's no, no getting no. around Galaxy's Edge. There's no, there's no Galaxy's Edge explanation for global warming. No. Right?
1: The weird thing is that people who love the free dining, this will get their attention, no doubt. And yeah. whether or not it's enough to convince them to do this, to, to go to Orlando in, in at the height of summer.
0: Anyway, we'll keep an eye on this. I expect to see other, uh, other deals uh, coming out mm-hmm. soon. Jim, why don't we take a quick break and we'll come back with our chronological Disneyland discussion. All right, James, we left off many months ago our discussion of chronological Disneyland history mm-hmm. roughly around 1998. And if I recall correctly, we were approaching the beginning of construction for Disney California Adventure. What prompts us to start here today?
1: I was thinking on the back of the test that's going on at Epcot right now in regard to Uber. Have you, you heard about this where they If you you order an Uber at Epcot, what they're going to do, they literally tell you, walk out to the parking lot, find the car in spot blank, and your driver will be there waiting for you. Oh, I didn't know they're actually sending spots
0: to them now. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And
1: in theory, should this test work, this will be in place when the Disney Hollywood Studios parking lot, all of the work that's going on there. This will be put in as an opening day feature for the parking lot there, and then they'll just retrofit this, do a better, more permanent job of it at Epcot, and of course, same thing in Animal Kingdom. Uh, Obviously, the challenge is it's going to be an entirely different thing for the Magic Kingdom, but for me, it's intriguing to watch Disney, sort of like Uber is not going away, and... Our guests seem to really want this so let's figure out a way to accommodate it more to the point let's make it easier for them to find the cars because the other the issue frankly they're addressing here is
0: <laughs> yeah you don't want uh you don't want families wandering around the parking lot no
1: that's it exactly and you also don't want the uber drivers trying to get to the the very front of the park and sneaking into handicap or the cab stands or that sort yeah. of thing so given the parking lot is very very front of mind of what the walt disney company is up to i thought It might be fun to sort of circle back onto what Disneyland faced when it was, they decided we're not going to do Westcott, but we are in fact going to do a second gate. We've talked about the shred in 1995 in Colorado, where they settled on the Disney's adventure theme and how much of that was on the back of picking pieces of Disney's America. and, And so when they finally decide, let's do this, the only real estate, is this parking lot that started off in July of 1955 with 12,175 spots. And over time, Disney was able to acquire some more land at the edge of the parking lot. And eventually, when it closed on January 21st, 1998, it had 15,176 spots. How how many acres was it? I want to say the classic Disneyland was 55 acres, the parking lot, I want to say, was 85 acres. Wow, really? Yeah. And they got some of that real estate back because, for example, Richfield, who was one of the original sponsors of Disneyland, one of the perks of Richfield was that because they came on board as the sponsor of the Earth Beneath Us attraction at Disneyland, mm-hmm. they got to have a gas station right at
0: Disneyland. Wow, that's a deal.
1: But but here's the thing. When that gas station closed in the 1970s, they did what you always did when you closed a gas station back in the 1970s. They left the tanks in place. Sure. And they just filled them with sand. (laughs) Jim, it's somebody else's problem at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So they flattened the building. They filled the tanks with sand. Now we jump ahead to just last year. And remember, Disney is getting ready to put that Four Diamond Hotel in. And they've already closed the Rainforest Cafe. They've closed Earl of Sandwich. They've closed... uh, They paid a premium to close these early. There we go. And so they start digging. And what do they find as they're digging but the old gas tanks... Filled with sand, if they find all of the soil that around these gas tanks, evidently the tanks, because they went in quickly, because, of course, everything that was built in Disneyland went in quickly, leaked. Huh. This is kind of one of the undiscussed parts of why that hotel suddenly slowed down and why Disney, hey, let's tap the brakes. I mean, it wasn't just losing that $267 million tax break. It was that suddenly there was at least part of the expansion area that was a Superfund site. Oh, so they can't build anything on it then? Disney wants to investigate how far the gas leaked.
0: Oh, okay. So, like, how far down and how far uh, out. Yeah.
1: If you think about the Grand Californian, if you think about the rest of the shopping district, you know, just dealing with this puts a huge kink in going forward with any sort of expansion plan. There was a reason they moved that hotel, then. But as of right now, they're kind of formulating a plan as to what do we do here. Long story short, don't expect any significant changes in that portion of the downtown Disney, Disney's Grand Californian area for quite a while until Disney does some test borings and crunches some numbers about what it's going to cost to actually fix this.
0: Okay, so fair enough. All right, so going back to the original construction. Okay, right, so again,
1: parking lot closes January 21st, 1998. Disney's California Adventure opens February 1st, 2001. In 1,084 days, they take it from a sea of asphalt to a theme park with three distinct lands. We have the, the Paradise Pier area. We have the Hollywood backlog. But going into this, they threw out most of the Disney rule book if you're in classic disneyland how many times have you heard the story about the berm and how you know they worked to keep you know the outside world out in fact we did an earlier show where we talked about how uh, disney actually with the help of the seat of anaheim got a code put in place where hotels could you know be only be of a certain height if they were within a mile of disneyland yeah they could be taller further out but it was all about protecting the visual intrusion and with California Adventure, the whole notion is well, this is our first urban theme park and we just have to overlook visual intrusion. People know they are at Disneyland and they were just on the street. So you know we can't pretend there isn't a McDonald's right outside here in fact. that's surprising that they would uh, that they would admit that. Barry Braverman flat out says this wasn't to be a theme park in the traditional Disney sense. From Barry's point of view, it wasn't a question of, they were going to shut down Disneyland for the three-plus years it was going to take to build this. Disneyland was going to stay open. When you're getting rid of 15,000 parking spots, where are those people supposed to park? And, of course, that's your Mickey and Friends parking structure, you know, which has 10,250, to be exact. Uh, but you, you had to build that. Anybody who remembers going to Disneyland back in the, the 70s and 80s remembers those electric power towers that basically marched straight into the parking lot because that was the stuff that powered, you know, It's a Small World, that powered parts of the Caribbean. And people for a lot of years complained about the original version of California Adventure, that it wasn't worthy of being built next to Disneyland. But from an urban planning point of view, the fact that they were able to hide all those cables, they were able to to keep the park open, that, that they were able, as they were getting rid of these 15,000 spots, to find other places to ha- have people park. The, the Mickey and Friends parking structure, then didn't open till July of 2000.
0: Yeah, so they had al- almost uh, two years in change. Yeah,
1: of, of, well, you go park over there, <laughs> you know,
0: and... Have you considered the bus? There you go. Yeah, I've I've walked around the, uh, the outside perimeter of California Adventure a number of times, mm-hmm. either because I'm staying at a different hotel... Yep. Or just to see what it's like. And I'm always impressed with how self-contained the whole thing is. Mm-hmm. That they managed to keep you know, roadways intact. They managed to keep Disneyland open, like you said. And they managed to not blow giant craters in the surrounding neighborhoods mm-hmm. as they were doing all of this construction. It really is a pretty impressive feat of engineering.
1: Never mind that. I mean, the, the whole notion of getting all of the businesses outside on board with the notion of now, when you're driving around, this is the perimeter of the, of the Disneyland Resort and see all of the beautiful, tall palm trees and the lush gardens and that sort of thing. They are nice. That never existed. Len. Oh, I know. I know it's new. Yeah. The whole garden district aspect of the Disneyland Resort or for that matter to go to every business that's in Harbor and get and say, okay, guys, from now on your sign can only be this big and only be this tall getting back to barry here that he said uh interview from the period disney's california adventure required a, a very unusual kind of design process we knew the park would only occupy a certain amount of acreage we knew we needed an entrance opposite disneyland we knew we needed a specific size hotel on property And we knew we needed to attain expansion for parking. And it was this urban planning puzzle. And we had to make all the pieces fit. And it's things like they were staging areas like a mile to two miles away from property that they would literally wait till the last guest left for the night. And then they'd bring in the building materials for the very next day.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: The construction of a theme park married to... Landing planes at O'Hare.
0: Yeah, I was going to say there's going to be some some sort of like traffic control thing going on when you, because you're trying to coordinate what's coming in and where and you can't, you know, you can't drop piles of dirt for construction in places that other trucks need to go, Mm -hmm. right? And you can't block paths and things like that. That's very interesting. So they go through this for two years. They end up having to build a hotel too first. What was done first? The park or the hotel? Like, do they work from the inside out of the park? How did it all? Well, remember, you know, first
1: you're doing, you have to rip up all the asphalt and then it's, it's conduit, it's piping. It's again, and as I mentioned, you know, taking all of that, those high tension electrical wires and burying them underground. And then Disneyland has a perimeter road. That's one of the ways that deliveries can be made to the park. That's one of the way cast members can get around, but they wanted to share some back of house stuff with Disneyland. And so one of the only ways they could do that is they had to put part of the perimeter road for California Adventure 60 feet underground. I remember at the the 60th anniversary of Disneyland, when they had closed the park for the day, a cast member was like, well, I got to get back over to DCA. And he's like, well, come with me. And we walked out through the back door by the in-between and then proceeded to walk down under the tunnel or you know that actually goes under the Disneyland plaza and that doesn't come back up to the surface again Lynn till just behind the Hyperion Theater really yeah from an urban planning point of view I really cannot stress this enough they did really did their job with with California Adventure where it all fell apart though This is how Barry explains it. Disneyland is a classic. It's an original and it had over 45 years to evolve into what it is today. We wanted Mm -hmm. Disneyland's sister park to be a really different kind of place telling a different kind of story. And I think we've really succeeded with Disney's California Adventure. Sadly, Barry's probably the only person who thought that. (laughs) I know where you're going with this. When California Adventure opened February 1st, 2001, There's a famous story from the Imagineer preview, which was held in January. They made the mistake of bringing in all of these former Imagineers, people like John Hench, who had worked on the classic Disneyland with Walt and Marty Sklar at one point corners John and says, what do you think? And John's like, well, to be honest, I liked it better as a parking lot. (laughs)
0: That's a great quote. I read that from an article about John. Hmm. I think it was. Last year in the LA Times, yeah, the only thing straight out of the, the gate
1: that was viewed as a su- success was Soarin'. Right in the hotel, right in the Grand Californian. Was, well, it was yeah, a nice the, 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 don't get me wrong. They, the Grand Californian worked basically from day one, and right. the gentleman who designed Wilderness Lodge also did Grand Californian, and and did a superb job. In fact, I'm blanking his name, but that architect. Paul Dominic, I want to say his name was, his first job, Len, was working mm-hmm. in the Disneyland parking lot. He parked cars. So he, he, here he is in the middle of this monstrous construction site. And it's like, oh, dear Lord, my life has come full circle. I'm back in this parking lot.
0: <laughs> it is uh, Peter Dominic, by the way. Good, uh, good Peter call him. Dom- there we go.
1: And downtown Disney basically worked
0: Yeah, for what it is, it's not bad.
1: Where it fell apart was the park itself, that even in the one true success. And, you know, Marty Scalar, I remember I got to interview him opening day at like 6 o'clock in the morning. And so if you were going to change one thing about this park, what would you change? And he thought for a second, he said, a third theater for soaring. We really underestimated the popularity there. We should have had a third theater. And so look at Epcot. (laughs) You know, fight. Yeah, but they eventually added the third, too, as well. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think Ward Kimball, very famously, when they showed him the model, he was like, God, it looks like Six Flags of a Disneyland. It was so much stuff. Disneyland has had Ferris wheels in the past, but they were
0: for temporary attractions like State Fair. Yeah. They weren't centerpiece attractions or advertised as such. Jim, why don't we uh, we do this? Why don't we stop here and on the next Chronological Disneyland, we'll talk about the post-opening reception that DCA got. How's that sound? That works for me. All right, folks. That's going to do it for our show today. We are produced fabulously by one Aaron Adams. Don't forget to go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. Also, don't forget to check out our other shows at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. For Jim, this is Len. And we'll see you on the next show.